0: Now, if you are not a citizen of the United States of America, perhaps you're a Canadian or some other nationality, this, this certainly applies to you as well. We all, by nature of our citizenship, have certain rights. For example, a lot of you in this room, as native-born citizens of the United States who are over 18, you may run for public office. You are entitled to the right to vote. If you're over the age of 35, you may run for president. Right now, we are exercising our right to free assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of speech. Even today, you exercised your privilege afforded you by a valid driver's license to drive or be driven here on the state or town-owned roads. You could have forfeited that right, and opted instead to walk. That choice, although perhaps unwise on a day such as today, is yours to make. It's your right. Take it or leave it. Well, what am I going on about? Our passage today deals with a question of rights and privileges. Whether we should insist on our rights, or whether we should be willing to give them up for the sake of others. Our scripture today is 1 Corinthians 8. I'd invite you to turn there. It can be found on page 956 in the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you. You'll also find a sermon outline in your bulletin. You can follow along on there if that's helpful for you. Last week... We heard from Brad, who preached on the second half of 1 Corinthians 7, in which Paul responds to an earlier letter sent by the Corinthians, where they raised a series of questions concerning the Christian life. In last week's passage, Paul addressed the question of how Christians ought to conduct themselves in respect to marriage and singleness, and more broadly, whether the Corinthians ought to seek to alter their current life circumstances. Our passage today continues with Paul's addressing of the Corinthians' questions. In this case, the question of whether it is sin to eat food which has been offered to idols. At a glance, this may seem foreign. To us, right? When, when was the last time that you had to decide whether or not to eat food offered to an idol? However, the principle which Paul teaches in this passage is still very much relevant since it gets at the heart of the gospel itself. And here it is. Here's what Paul wants us to understand. Love is the true sign of Christian maturity. Therefore, deal gently with love toward Christ's church, since she was bought with his precious blood. Now, before we read our passage, let's ask God to bless our time. Please pray with me. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word, and we ask you this morning to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear, that we may see Jesus this morning, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. So now I'll read the passage. I'll begin in verse 1, and I'll just read the whole chapter. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess Not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul begins by introducing the question posed by the Corinthians concerning food offered to idols. What exactly are we talking about here? What is Paul referring to? Well, Some historical background is is very helpful. Ancient Corinth was located in Greece, which you could imagine as two blobs of land in the Mediterranean connected by a little tiny strip of land called an isthmus. At this isthmus was the city of Corinth. Its advantageous location made it a center for trade and wealth, And integrated into that system was idolatry of every kind and color. As merchants and sailors from near and far came through Corinth, they brought their idols. And Corinth became known for lavish and debauched practices of idolatry, sort of like an ancient world idolatrous version of Las Vegas. As part of this idol worship Animals would be sacrificed in temples. Some parts of the animal would be used for worship, while the rest was either eaten at a banquet in the temple or sold in a local meat market. So here, here is the question posed by the Corinthians. Is it lawful for a Christian to participate in these practices, either in eating at the banquet in the temple or by purchasing the meat in the market? And they ask the question from this particular angle. Since we know there is only one true God, and this idol is nothing in comparison, doesn't that make it okay to eat the food which was offered to the idol? Instead of simply answering this question directly, Paul quite skillfully identifies that the Corinthians are beginning from a faulty premise. They are holding up knowledge as the supreme virtue and the primary sign of Christian maturity. Paul is going to begin by rejecting that premise and instead holding up love as the true sign of Christian maturity. Picking up in the middle of verse 1. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Your Bible probably has some quotation marks in this verse. That's because Paul is here quoting the Corinthians' earlier letter, in which they claim they possess knowledge. What's the consequence of this knowledge? What has it done among the Corinthians? Paul says it puffs up. What does it mean to be puffed up? We have a similar expression today. Has anyone ever said to you, don't get a swelled head? Or maybe you've said of someone else, That guy is getting too big for his riches. (laughs) Now, what character trait, or perhaps more accurately, what sin are these expressions referring to? Pride. The Corinthians have grown proud of their knowledge. As a result, their perception of themselves is distorted. They are puffed up not internally supported by anything substantial, but rather like a balloon inflated with hot air. They think they're far more mature than they really are. As we saw in chapter 1, the Corinthians have been influenced by their culture, which elevates worldly wisdom above all else. So how does Paul respond to this? He puts forward a better virtue than knowledge. He holds up to the Corinthians the virtue of love. And how is love better than knowledge? Paul says it doesn't puff up, but rather it builds up. That is to say, It has substance. It persists. Paul gives us more insight in verses 2 and 3. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Here Paul says, Look, If you think you're quite knowledgeable, you're wrong. Those among the Corinthians who are proud of their so-called knowledge will find they never knew as much as they really thought. This virtue of knowledge will reveal itself to be hollow if it is alone. On the other hand, if someone loves God, Paul says he is known by God. That phrase, known by God, is very telling. This being known by God is not the same as the Corinthians' mere intellectual knowledge. The Lord Jesus, in his earthly ministry, spoke of this same knowing. In probably the most terrifying passage in the Bible... He spoke of those who on the last day will come to him and claim to know him. They'll speak to him in intimate terms saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do this and that in your name? To which Jesus will reply, I never knew you. Depart from me. This knowing is more than God's intellectual awareness of someone. It speaks to God's knowing someone in a saving way. And so in our passage today, Paul says if someone loves God, this is a sure sign of a saving relationship with God. The Corinthians are all troubled with what they know, but Paul is much more concerned With who knows them. This is not to say knowledge is bad. Obviously, for one to love God, you must know who God is. And more than that, as we grow in our knowledge of God, we should likewise be growing in love for him as we come to understand just how lovely he is. But Paul says, our goal should not be knowledge in itself, but rather love. And specifically, love toward God, which is born out of a saving relationship with him. At the outset of Paul's discussion, then, we should ask ourselves, are we at Redeeming Grace Church elevating love over knowledge or knowledge over love? Have we grown proud in our pursuit of knowledge? Have we become cold and austere, prizing good theology and the high ground of being right above the self-denying love exhibited by the Lord Jesus? Could that ever happen in the future? Might we guard against that? Now that we've established the principle of love over knowledge, let's continue on in the passage, picking up in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Here, Paul agrees with the Corinthians that there is only one true God. And of course, this is clearly taught throughout the whole Bible. There are many false gods out there to be worshipped, but in reality, there is only one true God. Baal is not God. Zeus is not ruling and reigning. Aphrodite did not create you. Lord Buddha is dead. These gods, with a little g, are nothing in comparison to the one true god of the Bible, Yahweh. Now, what exactly is behind idol worship in terms of the spiritual world is sort of a whole can of worms in itself which Paul will later address in chapter 10. Um, I'll leave that for whoever covers that text later on. But what is vitally important that the Corinthians understand and that we understand is that there is but one true God. One Father for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ Christ through whom we exist. Let's just take a a brief moment and dwell on that. Paul is making a universal declaration concerning both the origin and the purpose of everything and everyone. Now, I'd like to take a moment and speak to any unbelievers who may be here today. Unbeliever, why do you exist? For what purpose are you here? While the world would tell you to make your own goals and come up with your own purpose, the truth is, you cannot. The Bible has already told you what your purpose is you were created for the glory of God whether you like it or not you were created to bring glory to God that is your purpose are you living up to that purpose are you pursuing it at all Hold that thought, and I I promise we'll come back to it. Returning to the question at hand. Since the Corinthians understand that this idol is no God at all, and therefore they are not rendering worship to this idol, does it mean anything to eat the food which has been sacrificed in the name of the idol? So far, Paul seems to be agreeing with the Corinthians. Their logic is sound as far as it goes. But see where Paul goes next. Pick up in verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Paul says, look, not all are as knowledgeable as you, dear Corinthians. Not everyone understands that these idols are no gods at all. Some Corinthian believers, particularly new believers who formerly participated in these practices, they still remember Worshipping that idol through feasts. And so in their mind, to eat that food would be idolatry. It would be spiritual adultery. It would be a rejection of God and a regression back into sin. Now you might be sitting there a little confused. How is something sin for one believer, but not sin for another? We have two groups being described within the Corinthian church. Those with strong consciences, and those with weak consciences. The strong understand that in their eating, they are not rendering worship. And so they are not sinning in doing so. But the weak among the Corinthians, those who formerly Participated in idol worship, they cannot separate the act of eating from the act of worshiping. They have an issue of conscience with eating eating the meat. For them, it is sin, not because the eating of the meat is in itself sinful, but because in doing so, they would go against their conscience. Paul speaks to this very clearly in Romans 14 where he teaches that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, if you think or feel that something is sin, even when it is not, but you do it, for you it is sin because you violated your conscience. Picking back up in verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? Paul makes it clear, the, the food itself is not the issue. The Corinthian believers, with strong consciences, are not worshipping this idol like the pagans are, they're simply eating food. And they're not bound from by any law to abstain from eating. As Paul says in verse 8, food will not commend us to God. Sin is something that takes place first and foremost in the heart not the physical body. But there is a consequence. Imagine this scenario. Let's say that I am a Corinthian who was recently converted from my pagan religion. But today I saw my dear brother Joe and I hold him in very high regard. I saw him going into the temple where I used to worship idols. And on his way in, he even invited me to go with him. Back to that place where I used to commit all sorts of wickedness, he invited me to come and, and eat with him. What might I be tempted to do? Verse 10 Will he not be encouraged? if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols. Paul says the weak brother will be encouraged to violate his conscience. And you can imagine the thought process. Well, if my brother Joe is eating that food, I guess it's okay for me to eat too. But what's the consequence? Verse 11, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. That is strong language. The Corinthians are so proud of their so-called knowledge that they have neglected to love their brother, who as a consequence is destroyed. Paul is speaking of the danger of apostasy, of falling away from Christ. Now, don't misunderstand. Paul is not saying that a genuinely converted, a genuinely born-again Christian who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit could ever be eternally lost. That's not what he's saying. Allow me to clarify Paul's meaning. Paul is using what we call phenomenological language. What the heck is that? I'm glad you asked. Phenomenological language is a literary device which, in scripture, is where something is described as it appears, but not as it really is. We use this sort of language all the time. For example, I might say, this morning the sun rose. Now, did the sun really rise this morning? No. No. The sun was perfectly still. It was, in fact, the earth's rotation that caused the apparent rising of the sun. But we say and all accept as a truthful statement that this morning the sun rose because that's how it appears to us. In this case, Paul is using phenomenological language to describe the apostasy, the falling away of an apparent believer. Now, Jesus himself taught that in his church, not all those who claim to belong to Christ are really his, but until we know for certain, in eternity, all of God's redeemed saints, we must treat each and every professing believer as one genuinely forgiven by God and redeemed by Christ's blood. In this way, Paul speaks of one who, by all accounts, appears to be a brother falling away. What he is saying is that a professing believer who is new in his faith could, as a result of a more mature, if I can use that word, a more mature brother's inconsiderate actions, be led down a path of former sin. By violating his conscience and sinning, he hardens his heart against God. If this professing believer, in fact, has not been genuinely converted, it is very possible for this to become a downward spiral, which could lead them to apostasy and eternal destruction. God forbid such a thing ever take place. However, even if the believer does not fall away. This is not to say he is not harmed by the selfishness of his brother. What destruction short of apostasy is a consequence of the Corinthians' inconsiderate behavior, leading their brothers to violate their conscience? How about backsliding, regression into former sin? We might be tempted to say, well, Compared to eternal destruction, that doesn't seem so bad. But hang on just a minute. Paul reminds us also that this brother was bought with Christ's precious blood. Christ loves this dear one. Would the Corinthians dare show such disregard for the one upon whom Christ has set his love? But it's it's worse than that. Paul continues in verse 12. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Paul says this offense is not just against the brother. It is a sin against Christ himself. Let me remind you, friends, This letter is not just for the Corinthians, but for us as well, for the saints at Redeeming Grace Church. Remember that all we who trust in Christ are united to him in faith. And therefore, when you sin against your brother or you sin against your sister, you sin against Christ. And when you lead your brother to sin, Christ's afflictions are increased. Jesus Christ paid for that sin, that sin which you provoke in your brother. That is a grievous thing. Far be it from us to do such a thing. So what should the Corinthians do instead? What should we do instead? Paul sets an example. Let's finish the the passage with verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. It's very simple. Paul sets forth an easy formula for us. If X makes my brother stumble, I will never do X, lest I make my brother stumble. That's it. If something could be a question of conscience for your brother, who is new in the faith, don't lead him to sin. If, for example, your brother, new in the faith, has a conviction that the consumption of alcohol is sin, but you are convinced it is not, don't encourage him to drink alcohol. Don't even drink in his presence. In so doing, you may be tempting your brother to violate his conscience. If he violates his conscience, for one, you've sinned against Christ by leading him to sin, but you've also caused him to harden his heart against sin, which could lead to him falling back into sin and even falling away completely. Instead, love your brother, forego your right, and do not tempt him to sin. If, say, you have a brother who you know in the past has been a slave to sexual sin, do not invite him to see that R-rated movie. To do so would be to your brother's detriment. You may be tempting him to violate his conscience. You may be tempting him to sin. You may be hardening his heart such that he falls back into sin and eventually falls away altogether. Do not sin against Christ by tempting his people to violate their consciences. Instead, exercise love toward the body of Christ and deal gently with those who have been redeemed by his precious blood. Be ready to give up your rights and privileges for the sake of the weak. Act in love toward them because Christ has loved you first. Now a word of qualification. Is Paul advocating for a church which is dominated by the weak and immature? No. As with all things, there must be balance. While care should be taken not to provoke weaker brothers to sin, At the same time, it is the responsibility of the church to build up these brothers in faith and understanding so that they may understand that their brothers with strong consciences are not sinning. So, if you consider yourself to have a weaker conscience, and you have some prohibitions that your brothers and sisters don't share, don't judge them for doing the things that you cannot If your conscience is weak, do not be overly concerned about trying to change it. Your greater priority should be to keep from sinning against God by violating your conscience. Paul is advocating a culture within the church of grace and courtesy toward all. The strong should not provoke the weak to sin, and the weak should not judge the strong for not sharing their convictions. And so Paul urges the Corinthians and urges us, do not insist on your rights simply because you know better than the weak. Put aside your rights for the sake of the brothers. Our chief example in this is Christ himself. Hear Paul's words in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, Friends, Jesus forfeited his rights for the sake of us, his enemies. He who dwelled in heaven and enjoyed the worship of angels came down and set aside his privileges, his rights, for our sake. He stooped to our humanity, and he endured beatings and scourging. He was spit upon and mocked stripped and nailed to a cross of wood upon which he was subjected to the full wrath of God upon sin. And finally, having endured more than we could possibly imagine, he died. Why? Why did he go through it all? Why did he give up his rights only to receive suffering in return? Because he loved you. Because he loves his people. He set aside the joys of heaven for the torment of the cross because he loves his sheep. And he died. To pay the penalty for their sins. Tell me, is it really too much of Him to ask us to forgo our meager rights and freedoms for the sake of our brothers? Jesus Christ gave up so much more than we ever could. Is it too much of Him to ask? It's not. It's really not. It's really not too much for Him to ask. It's rather a small ask, all things considered. Now, if you're here as a non-Christian, I'd like to speak to you again. Have you ever seen a love like that of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people? A love that gives up one's rights for the sake of others' good? Have you ever loved like that? Could you? Friend, the truth is, you cannot. Apart from Christ, your sinful heart is enslaved to a self-centeredness that cannot be neglected. You may put others before yourself when convenient or expedient. Perhaps sometimes you put others first, even seemingly to your detriment. But secretly, even in times like that, you're just doing it so you can exalt yourself in your idolatrous heart. At the end of the day, you are a server of self. And I know it's the truth because before I was a Christian, that was me. That's what I did. And it was all I could do. Scripture says our hearts are enslaved to sin apart from Christ. Only a heart indwelled by the Holy Spirit can exercise such love as Jesus has for his church. For some of you, you've been in the church for a long time seeing the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love that gives up rights for the sake of others. You've seen that love, but only, as it were, from the outside looking in. Don't you wish you could stop peering through that window and open the door and go in? Please hear me when I say, the Lord Jesus would have you come in. He invites you in. Friend, Jesus, the God-man, came to this earth for a purpose. It was not simply to set an example, although that he certainly did do. He came to reconcile us to God, to bridge the gap created by our rebellion against the Father. Jesus lived the righteous life we did not. He was not selfish as we are selfish. And as the supreme demonstration of his selflessness, he died a sinner's death on a cross, taking the wrath of God that we deserve upon himself. And then he rose from the dead, proclaiming victory over death itself. And now he commands all men everywhere to repent of their sins And place their faith in His work. And in so doing, you will be forgiven. You will be saved. Earlier, I asked you to think about your purpose in life. Paul was very, very clear God created you for His glory, that is your purpose. As the old catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you, unbeliever, if you want to embrace your true purpose, here's your first step. Put away your sins. Trust in Christ. Be reconciled to God, your creator. Cry out to him, even today. He will free you from your selfishness. He will break the chains of sin and you will be free to love as Christ loves. To my brothers and sisters, let us seek love over knowledge. Let us deal gently with the people of God, loving them as Christ loved them And gave himself up for them. Do not provoke your brothers or sisters. To sin against their consciences. Be willing. To forego your rights. For the sake of Christ's flock. Because to sin against them. Would be to sin against Christ. And praise God. That he has set us free. From our selfishness. And he has given us the freedom. To do so. May God give us grace to grow more and more in a love for God's people that bears witness to the love that God has shown us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your grace today that your spirit may apply these things to our souls to conform us more into the image of Christ. Help us to exercise a love for your people that bears witness to a love for you because you first loved us and sent your son to redeem us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, who lived the righteous life we did not. He died the sinner's death we deserved, who was raised from the dead, and who now intercedes on our behalf in your presence. It's in his name we pray. Amen.